disruption zone. Opportunity lives where the status quo dies. Talking to the greatest innovators, disruptors, and off-the-wall inventors, we can scrounge up. You laugh, you'll learn, you'll be inspired. Now, here are your hosts, Leland Conway and Cameron Mills. As those of you who have listened to me for a long time know, uh, privacy, personal data protection uh, is super important to me. And uh, protecting that privacy and that data from the government uh, in order to protect freedom of speech, dissent, and investigating what the government is up to. These are very important issues to me. And uh, I followed the story of Cheryl Atkinson, Atkinson, a reporter, former reporter for CBS News. Ever since it happened, um, I was very suspicious that the Obama administration was spying on American media. Uh, they made it no secret that they would go after media people who were considered to be some sort of a threat to them. Um, and Cheryl Atkinson claims that she is one of the victims of that spying and other types of abuse. We later, of course, found out from Edward Snowden that the government was, in fact, not just spying on the media, but pretty much everybody. Um, I'm certain that that continues to this day, and I'm certain that they target specific people. Um, maybe not necessarily to harass them, but to keep an eye on what they're talking about, what they're thinking about, and where they might go next. Um and this, there needs to be a wall between what the government... This is the thing that I've said before many times on my show. I've said, look, if the government has a power of any sort, whether it's to protect us or help us or whatever, whatever power they have, eventually, <clears throat> and history has proven this time and time again, it will be used against its own people. So we have to think about any time we run to the government for help in our lives, that whatever power we give them to help us, will be used against us. And I think we've seen over the last year or so a perfect example of that with what has happened with the COVID reaction, right? I mean, we gave the government the power to do whatever it wanted to to keep us safe. It didn't keep us safe, but it has kept us divided and very easy to control. Anyway, I wanna, I, I'm just super excited about our guest today. It's uh, Cheryl Atkinson. Uh, those of you who have uh, certainly followed my radio show know that I've talked about her a lot. Those of you who have tried to keep an eye on what is going on in the news um, and get it from an unfiltered uh, perspective, know who she is. She's a former CBS reporter. She's an Emmy-winning uh, reporter. She won uh, her reporting, actually, a story that she did, that she was uh, the reporter on, actually won an Edward R. Murrell Award. She's won multiple enemy, em Emmys. She has been <laughs> enemy. Freudian slip. She's created multiple enemies as an investigative reporter. She is one of the last true journalists when it comes to truly trying to find the source of the issue. She investigated Benghazi. She investigated Congress wasting money on trips to uh, climate conventions. She investigated waste of taxpayer dollars. She investigated on both sides of the aisle. And so I'm super excited to bring Cheryl Atkinson onto the program. We're going to talk about a little bit of her background, but also uh, she has been reporting on her website. You go to CherylAtkinson.com. Uh, she has been reporting on those that have been censored for speaking out against the quote-unquote conventional wisdom on um, COVID. Uh, and she has reported on a lot of the censorship that's been going on around President Trump and so on and so forth. So this is a really, uh, I think, 
fascinating interview, and I'm looking forward to having her on. First, though, let me thank our sponsor today, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. Um, folks, I don't talk about businesses that I don't fully believe in, and I fully believe in Louisville, counters, uh, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. I wouldn't tell you this if I didn't think they'd do a good job for you. So if you're thinking about getting your kitchen redone and remodeled, I want you to go to Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. Um, and they have an unparalleled work ethic. I've seen it in action. We've been customers of theirs for years. Uh, of course, now we live in Colorado, but I'm confident that the work they did in our kitchen back in Kentucky helped our house sell in less than a day. Their work ethic is unparalleled. Uh, I love their designers, uh, Kelly, Michelle, George. They would love to see you in the showroom at 11, or excuse me, 6200 Hit Lane, right on the border of Oldham County and Louisville. If you're in southern Indiana, Louisville, or Oldham County, this is your place. And if you want to check them out on the web first, just go to LouisvilleCabinetsAndCountertops.com, and you can see the selections that they have, examples of their work. Uh, you can see some testimonials. Like, here's what Kathy said in a Google review. Worked with Tim and his team on a kitchen remodel and couldn't be happier. I will use them again if I ever have another kitchen project. Uh, here's what Steph said. Steph said, excellent product and fantastic service after the sale. That's huge to me, by the way. Would definitely do business with this company again. So these are some of the Google reviews that Louisville Cabinets and Countertops has. So if you want to revamp your kitchen or get your house ready to sell or whatever it is you want to do, give these guys a call at 502-930-3304. Or excuse me, 502-930-3304, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. And now, without further ado, here is the great Cheryl Atkinson. Welcome, Cheryl Atkinson. I've been following your story, Cheryl. Um, first of all, I was following your stories. Very phenomenal investigative reporting. And then when you left CBS, I've been following your fight with the government. And I want people to understand that you've won Emmys, Edward R. Murrow Awards. Um, you are a lifelong, dedicated journalist, something that I feel like is rare these days. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Um, let me start with this because I was, I know that we were going to talk mostly today about, uh, the misinformation coming from the government and from the media about COVID and the COVID vaccine and other things, or at least the, maybe I should say the covering up of information or the, the quieting of information that might draw questions to the conventional wisdom. But I want people to understand your background and, um, of course did a little bit of that in the intro, but from you, you Again, award-winning CBS reporter, your work followed digging up um, expensive trips for the government to um, climate change conventions. It followed wastes of taxpayer dollars. It followed corruption in the government. It followed Benghazi. Um, you dug into stories people were interested in hearing the truth about, but maybe the government wasn't very happy for you to be digging into. Well, I guess that's true, but that's actually... I. I think some of the most rewarding work as a journalist that you can do. And I made it my mission to follow the leads, whether it hit Democrats or Republicans or, you know, most of my work was actually nonpartisan and nonpolitical, but that's, you know, where the most interesting revelations can come. A lot of follow the money stories about our taxpayer waste and waste of our taxpayer money and fraud and abuse. And, you know, just, I, I focus now on what I call off narrative stories that the, media has decided for whatever reason, almost as a monolithic group, that they're not going to cover or they're only going to cover in a one-sided fashion. These are stories that would have been well covered by everybody just a few years ago. But I think your listeners know there's been this narrowing of our information landscape. And 
so many people are only allowed to report or talk about things a certain way. I just wrote down off narrative because I want to come back to that. Um, but I do want people to really have a full picture of your background and your fight against the government. Um, you, you have been fighting the government over its attempt to spy and intimidate on you. Um, can you tell us a little synopsis of what happened? Well, I guess to make it a long, very long story short, I learned through sources before the revelations about the spying our government had done in 2016, before Edward Snowden, before we knew they spied on Associated Press years ago and James Rosen at Fox News. I got a tip during this time period from Intel officials who said that due to my reporting, I was likely being monitored. And remember, this was unheard of at the time. I never imagined anything like that would be happening to me. But lo and behold, through, first of all, a forensics exam from an insider that helped me out, uh, showing that this had happened and giving a lot of details, and then through independent exams that confirmed it, I learned it was all true. And CBS News announced it. I was working for CBS at the time, that there had been an intrusion of our system at CBS through my computers by unauthorized remote intruders. That began not only a battle to try to hold people accountable in hopes it would stop because I certainly was far from the only one they were doing this to. But then there was a, let's say, a concurrent propaganda campaign by some in the media, these propagandist groups and so on who are controlled by certain interests to pretend that none of that happened. And this was all a fantasy of conspiracy theorists and so on. And I've been fighting in court since the Department of Justice, the agents who are responsible, we can now identify through a whistleblower so we can add that to the forensics. But the Department of Justice will not hold its own accountable. Sound familiar? Yeah. So for something like seven years, I've been suing in court, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars of my own money trying to get some accountability, and I'm still being fought. And I've learned that it doesn't matter if you have all the proof, the forensics, and, and a federal officer, former federal officer, admitting he did it. Right. If you can't get into court, the court's favor, in my view, the Department of Justice, who fights you with unlimited money, and all kinds of technicalities, there's really nothing you can do about it. The thing that is most stunning about your story is that in 2017, the, the courts basically sided with the government and said, you didn't have anybody that you were specifically accusing. Now you have this new development where you're like, uh, yeah, I do. I have somebody who admitted they did it to me, and now you can't get back in. And it's like, um, you know, and the reason you didn't have anybody you could point the finger specifically at is because this was the government abusing you and you had plenty of proof or evidence that there was a there there but when they said go away and come back when you have somebody you went away and you came back when you have somebody and now they still won't listen to you because you have a whistleblower yeah they're saying well the statute of limitations has oh been too God. long but you know um i thought naively <laughs> once i had the proof in hand which happened pretty fast i thought wow i never dreamed i would have forensic evidence that shows the government was in my computers illegally right. and i thought that's all you needed i didn't know that you the alleged victim had to somehow do legwork and you don't have access i don't have access to the documents inside the justice department they denied every paper every page of discovery we asked for they refused and the court supported them on it so how am i supposed to get the proof without the lawsuit, but the right. lawsuit can't move forward without the proof. It makes it makes no sense. In fact, one federal judge, a Clinton appointee, when I appealed all of this um, some couple years ago, said just that, that this was a Kafka-esque loop that they had put me in that makes mm -hmm. it impossible for anybody to prove their case if the government has done this to them because they require you to prove it before you have access to the proof, which the 
perpetrators hold. Right. Wow. That's just <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, so do you have a chance of getting back in or is it statute of limitations and the government's just giving you the uh, the old well, Heisman Trophy Stonewall? You know, we think we have an argument around statute of limitations. It has been years, but we're in Maryland court now suing Rod Rosenstein and other agents that were involved or ex-agents who are responsible. But that's been sitting there now because of coronavirus, of course. Mm. The courts, for whatever reason, claim they can't operate. So that's been sitting there for a year with nothing going on. And um, even one of the people we're suing who doesn't want to fight the case because he admits it, the court folds his argument in with those who do want to fight the case. So he can't even, we can't even get the one person who says I did it <laughs> to do anything about that because the judge folds him into whether he likes wow. it or not into the defense of the people that don't want to admit they did it. It's just, so we're just sort of on a holding pattern right now. Can you, just so people understand the depth of what actually happened to you as a reporter, can you explain a couple of the really creepy things that you found that showed that the government was snooping around in your computer? I mean, this wasn't just that you had a van parked out in front of your house marked FBI. That's not right. how it worked, right? I mean, well, you, kind of go you know, ironically, there were there are several phases to this and groups. At some point in time, they did have a van parked out <laughs> in front of the house. It didn't say FBI on it, but they had in the neighborhood. Some of my neighbors, in fact, in retrospect, who have worked with the CIA, noticed this at the time. Right. There's a lot view and some technology they can use at the time but they also had a drop line in the back of my house a fiber optics cable line that somebody installed that they could download apparently apple computers are a little harder to defeat or were at this time than windows and i use apple computers and then they came in through um you know the forensics showed in one instance on a particular date and time that we have pinpointed they came in through an email. It looks like an innocuous email, but then when you click it, it downloads in the background the software that can then infiltrate your computer. They can use and use Skype to exfiltrate files, so you don't even know your Skype's being used, and they can listen into audio surreptitiously through Skype without you knowing the audio's even on, and they did that. They rooted around in my work files. We know which you know ones in particular in some cases they looked at, photographs for the Fast and Furious story I was covering, Somebody downloaded classified documents deep into the biosystem of my computer that I don't even know, you know, didn't even know existed. And they had a keystroke monitoring program so that they could see everything, you know, monitor every keystroke. And then they accessed the CBS system through my computers. And, and the they, larger they planted classified information on your computer? Well, all I can say is there was classified information found in there that I didn't put in there. And, I mean, it almost sounds like they were trying to set you up. Because, yeah. I mean, if because they could, if you were in possession of classified information, they could come after you for that. So it almost sounds like they were trying to set you up in some way. Well, we now know from the way they operate, in particular from one of the agents who's acknowledged this, that that's the standard operating procedure for some of these, you know, you could call them dirty tricks groups or rogue operators. In fact, by the way, one of the group that was involved in some of the surveillance of me includes an ex-Secret Service agent. He was a Secret Service agent at the time who's now in prison serving time for doing other bad stuff while he was working for the government on these computer issues. So wow. these are not great people who are doing this. These are bad guys who are willing to break the law. There's no doubt they do it. Some are in prison for you know related stuff already. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, yeah, so they've, they've admitted to, in one case, they said, one of the guys said they plant blackmail material on people. They plant child pornography on computers. They, yeah, I have no doubt that, that they would consider or have planted classified documents either 
to implicate me or somebody who was a source because a source, it's not yeah. necessarily a crime for me to have a classified document. It depends on how I got it. Uh, and we know during Fast and Furious, one of my main sources, the former ATF agent John Dotson, had said to me at the time that they were trying, he knew actively or he believed that the government was trying to frame him or make it appear as though he had leaked classified information so they could arrest him or do something to him. So who knows if it was a part of that. Do you think they're still surveilling the media now? Yes. I mean, I don't know how, but I think there was more than one operation. Mm -hmm. I think this has been broad and widespread for many, many years. It didn't start under the Obama administration, right. although it may have expanded due to expanding technology. I think some of it's done probably outside of the country. They have a million ways to do it, and it's not hard. And since nobody's been held accountable, even when caught, even when they got caught doing these things, for example, I have the proof or with what they did in 2016, if nobody's ever held accountable yeah. or prosecuted, why would they stop? Yeah. I, there's no reason they would stop. There's a fascinating episode of Joe Rogan's podcast, which I freely admit I listen to all the time, um, where they were talking about those, you mentioned the foreign companies, most of them based in Israel and some of our other allies that have developed, you know, they do those those fake emails, right? So they'll send you a text or an email. All they need is your phone number. So somebody gives them the phone number, um, then you you open the text thinking it's a normal text. You click a link, and next thing you know, they've got your phone. They've cloned it. Bam, done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they do that through email as well. And one of the ways that so, and I guess one question I was going to ask you: Do you think it's when you say the government, is it the overarching government, or is it particular actors in the government who don't want what they're doing to be uncovered? So, in other words, is it widespread, or is it? particular actors who have connections with other actors and organizations within the government who have this power who can then go after somebody in order to keep whatever their misdeeds are quiet? I think it's all of the above. What I've wow. learned over the years is the government and intel agencies are tripping all over each other on cross operation. They're running into each other. They're, they're arresting people out west for smuggling drugs that one agency finds out as a source of the other agency that finds out is working as a confidential informant for a third age. Everybody's <laughs> tripping all over each other with these operations. It's kind of ridiculous. And I'm quite certain that with all of the, just the details we know about of members of Congress and journalists and innocent Americans who've been surveilled, that this is not something that's just, that's small. Right. And one of the federal agents familiar with one of the programs said his program alone was doing this to hundreds of people, wow. you know, when they were to me. So I don't think it's a small thing. Um, yeah, and when you and I said in the intro, I was like, one of the things we have to remember is whatever power we decide to grant the government, it will eventually use against us. And so, you know, we've seen a big example of that during this COVID thing where we've gone to the government and said, protect us, protect us. And we gave an enormous amount of leeway to our government. And now it has used it in a way that has uh, advanced a specific political agenda and has divided us and kept us very afraid. And now it's easy to control us. And I think that's one of the dangers when you talk about all the power that the government has now, the tools that they have at their hands, and you got all these different bureaucracies running all these different directions. I mean, thank God they're tripping over each other. Otherwise, it would be organized. I mean, can you imagine if someone like Stalin or Mao had had the tools that our government now has in order to um, you know, suppress public thought? In a way, we're actually seeing that play out in China right now. Well, I'm not so sure we're all that far off of it. The thing that frightens me the most is there's certainly a lot of good people who don't do that, who work in government, but they've seen quite clearly that there are no repercussions for those, including some fairly high ranking, that get caught doing it. Mm -hmm. So what do you think their takeaway is? And I think that's why we haven't seen more people step forward. 
I have good information that I believe that shortly after the Trump election initially, FBI agents did come forward and talk to members of Congress. In fact, they specifically went to Republican-led committees to tell some of what they knew. Well, guess what? Some of the Republicans gave these names to the Department of Justice that they were required to. Mm -hmm. Well, that got back almost immediately to the FBI, and that stopped you know, the notion that anybody would come forward. And then they've turned around and seen nobody punished, not the general counsel that a lot of insiders said at the FBI was allegedly a bad guy mm -hmm. and did get caught allegedly doing some things, but nothing happened to him. The one lawyer that did get caught uh, doctoring a document, this is really one of the worst violations of public trust in his job I can think of, yeah. was given just the tiniest charge in probation from what I understand, rather than, you know, I think you could have imagined a charge that involved, um, you know, sedition and fraud and fraudulent documents, all kinds of things. And they just let him off with not even a slap on the wrist, I think, in the view of many. So this is what happens, you know, and government insiders who are honest see this and know who's going to win. Ultimately, they're not going to come forward and talk about this. Well, the Snowden revelation wasn't new. There were people before him who had come forward and said the exact same thing and their lives were destroyed. The only difference was that Snowden got out of the grasp of the U.S. government and was able to get the information into real journalists' hands so that the American people could know, and now has to stay out of the grasp of the U.S. government um, in order to stay alive, essentially. And that's well, the only way he was able to get information out that had already been suppressed when others had come forward with it. Yeah, you know, I had done a timeline. Um, it's on my website still somewhere at SherylAckerson.com, I think under investigations, but timeline of government surveillance abuses, just the ones we know about. you got to imagine we only know about from time to time a teeny fraction of what happens. This stuff dates back a long time yeah. with Congress, um, Congress getting spied on illegally by our agencies and having stuff leaked out, you know, for political purposes when they were doing something, you know, Congress members of Congress doing something that certain people didn't like. We know that Clapper, uh, the former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, gave false testimony to Congress about surveillance. We know John Brennan's agency when he was at the CIA spied on the Senate Intelligence Committee staffers denied it, later got caught and admitted it and apologized, but it was allowed to stay on the job. I mean, there are so many examples that tell us exactly what's been going on behind the scenes for many years. And yet with impunity, you know, the people yeah. just apologize and live to. And actually, after these incidents, they usually get their power expanded. I just can't <laughs> figure that out. Congress will like vote to allow more power or renew the surveillance authority that they abused or whatnot. Yeah, they either get their exp power expanded or they get a fat check from CNN. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they can go be a pundit. Um, what's and, and I want to transition real quick here, but I, I do have one other question on all of that. What story do you think it was that you were digging on that got them so scared that they would make a mistake that would expose themselves? I think um, I was already being surveilled when I was doing stories about vaccine links to autism with the pharmaceutical industry slash government very very concerned and upset about those a lot of people were covering those back then mm -hmm. and then i think what really jump started us into them being a little bit sloppy was fast and furious um and and right before that quite frankly i was doing so many stories that i know they didn't like but i was also doing stories on misuse of our green energy money our taxpayer money after solyndra they kind of were going ballistic over that we knew the administration was trying to stop those stories but it was during that time period of the energy stories and fast and furious that not only do we have internal emails now from the government talking about me and trying to stop my stories 
we have forensic evidence that show the date and the time and the method and what they looked at when they were coming in during this time period. Then there was what my forensics experts call a separate phase of surveillance about the time I started covering um, under CBS assigned me to cover the Benghazi attacks. So there was more going on, you know, on the follow up to Fast and Furious when I was doing Benghazi shortly before the election. Benghazi seemed to be a real hot rail to touch. Um, Chris Pronto is a friend of mine and been on the podcast a couple of times. And I've been fascinated with that story and how we could, you know, how how much effort very publicly and overtly to literally misdirect the public. I mean, it was it was a sloppy effort. I mean, that whole video, the YouTube video was just laughable. Um, their timelines didn't match up. You know, Susan Rice was caught lying on national TV. And yet it just sort of blew over, which brings me kind of to a segue to where I, I really wanted to get to today. And, you know, I'm a former journalist, longtime pundit, right? I am not a journalist now. I am an opinionator. Um, I give people my opinion. I try to be honest about that. This is my agenda. This is where I come from. I'm a libertarian-leaning, conservative, independent. This is me. But I started out as a journalist. And I remember in the I was in public radio of all places, Cheryl. And my boss, to this day still a friend, very, very staunchly liberal, knew that I was conservative. I was only conservative in the newsroom. And he came to me one day and he said, Leland, he said, bias is impossible to avoid because it's part of your overall view of life. You're raised that way. We all have biases. What I'm demanding of you is that you must be fair. So in other words, he was saying, I understand that bias is going to seep through in the stories you choose, even without you knowing it, and the words sometimes, but he's like, must be fair. You mean you have to tell the both sides, you have to look, you have to take a look under the hood. And so that kind of brings me to the point you mentioned earlier, off narrative. You do the stories that are off narrative. There is a very strong guided narrative that the mainstream media is on. Even often, sometimes the so-called conservative outlets won't touch certain things. And it's so clear that that's the case. Part of it is probably for profit, right? Let's not shake the tree too much. Let's shake it just enough. Let's put the clickbait out and go on with our lives. But one wonders if your story wasn't maybe sloppy by the government on purpose, where they figured they can skew you enough in the public opinion polls to make enough people think maybe you're just a conspiracy theorist, but the real journalists will know exactly what they did to you and won't touch those third rails. I know it was a long way of getting to the point, but am I on to something? Yeah, I mean, I think that is twofold. Even before, I don't think they ever thought or hoped I would discover the surreptitious surveillance because they were trying to hide that and I only know about it whereas others don't know what's happening to them because I had these sources that were able to take a look. This is stuff in the computer that my computer guys at CBS could not find and didn't detect. This is that you have to know, I'm told, where to look and what the software looks like. You have to be on the inside to find it and that's that's how we're able to find it. But yes, in general there's also this parallel um, propaganda campaign, and I started noticing these really becoming successful in maybe the 2004-2005 time period, and not so much before that, where um, these special interests and political interests enlist LLCs and super PACs and nonprofits and law firms and PR firms to controversialize a particular reporter or news outlet or story to try to make people, if nothing else, so confused about what the truth might be that they just throw out the whole story or to polarize it, which they did with Fast and Furious, 
it's Fast and Furious was, in my view, not a at its heart a political story, but they made it one so that people would come down on strict lines, and you would only have you'd have a set of believers and a set of non-believers, depending on where they stand politically. That accomplishes their mission as well as anything else. If they can make something look like it's purely political and make people question, you know, on the one side, just dismiss it out of hand. And so there's been an effort, you know, I'm a nonpartisan journalist and I, I was called liberal for probably most of my career, but then it became more um, expeditious or necessary for powerful interests to portray me as conservative in recent years. So they've flipped me from being a liberal to a conservative, although I haven't changed, right. so that my work can be pegged a certain way, uh, you know, written up, whether it's in fake encyclopedia, Wik Wikipedia, wherever it is that people will look maybe if they do some background on me and they hope be convinced that I'm a partisan so that my reporting is to be questioned. I've somehow survived that because that's been pretty heavy campaign since at least 2012. Yeah. And it's, it's aided and abetted by the dishonest players in the media that work for, you know, on, on behalf of these interests, but somehow I've managed to kind of survive it, I guess, by calling it for what it is. And recognizing it and not being intimidated by it, I embrace it. I don't, I don't, you know, sit there and spend my time whining and crying and denying. And I, I do know a lot of journalists that are so upset and disturbed when this happens to them, they sort of fold up into a ball. Right. But my instinct is to say, I must be on to something and I keep going. And I, I want to talk about some of the really strong work you've put out recently, uh, including several books that I think are must reads um, if you're interested in the future of journalism. Um, Slanted, which just came out um, last year, how the media news media taught us to love censorship and hate journalism. That's really powerful stuff. And and I think it kind of segues us into where we're kind of going right now. The, the last year has been phenomenal in terms of a teaching moment, I think, for us about the state of our republic and the state of journalism and the state of information and freedom. Um, there does seem to be a very specific narrative around COVID. The vaccine is awesome, although that narrative also has flipped, you know, just like what you were saying uh, back in, you know, June of last year when President Trump was saying we're going to have a vaccine by the end of the year. The very same people now that are demanding that we take that vaccine were saying that the vaccine would be impossible at the end of the year and that if it was, it's a Trump vaccine, Vice President Kamala Harris, it's a Trump vaccine and therefore it's untrustworthy. Those same people are now telling us we must take it and they're very excited about it. So that narrative in the media and the media followed that narrative back in January. They helped build that narrative. It won't be trustworthy. It'll be Trump's vaccine. Now they're helping to build the opposite narrative. You must take the vaccine or else. Congressman Thomas Massey, a good friend of mine, actually caught the CDC red handed misinforming people about whether the vaccine needs to be taken by folks who have already had it. We have Fauci, Dr. Fauci, telling the New York Times that I've been manipulating people's opinions until the polls catch up to where I want them to be. This kind of these kinds of admissions make us question everything we're being told about this whole COVID response. Well, it should make you question it. And then when you do, you're caught instead of the obvious fact that you use your common sense to look at these contradictions and made some conclusions or ask some questions, that's used then by the same people to say there's something wrong with you. You're a coronavirus doubter or you're crazy or you're anti-vaccine, none of which is true, but those are all the propaganda lines. But I, I do think, I would say and hope a majority of the public sees the same thing you do when they see these contradictions and they too ask questions. The problem is 
the questions are not always healthy. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the problem is the government then looks at you and says, why are you doubting masks without understanding that they're the ones that created the doubt? You know, they have to take responsibility for when you put out wrong information or false information or insist, you know, something you don't yet know and then completely change it as if and, you know, put the former information down the memory hole. And you don't think that thinking people are going to wonder, well, which time was the lie? You know, were you lying then or now? What can I believe? People should have a healthy skepticism of this machine that seems to think and public health has really surprised me as I've learned more over the years. They think their job is to convince you to feel a certain way and to be confident about whatever they want you to be confident about, not really to tell you the truth about stuff. And that's a hard thing to learn as a reporter, a hard thing to recognize that you're getting false information sometimes from these revered public health agencies that you would like to think and hope since you're paying them and they work for you, that they're looking out for your best interest. They're not always doing that. And they may do some great work, but it's undermined by the times when some officials are putting out false information like what Congressman Massey discovered, and then it undermines people's faith in a lot of what they do, even when they're telling you the truth. Yeah. I was actually banned from Facebook for 24 hours because I posted, these were all factual statements, and now, of course, even the mainstream is talking about what I said, but I posted and said, if you really want to either avoid COVID or mitigate its effects, exercise, cut out sugar, because sugar is driving bad immune systems, and take vitamin D and zinc. And Facebook literally banned me for 24 hours for violating standards and misinforming people about COVID. Now, of course, every doctor in America is prescribing D and zinc. Um, But it's, it's fascinating to me that big tech jumped in on this. What do you think is driving big tech? Is it because it doesn't seem to be a need for profit? It shouldn't matter to their profits one way or another whether people have free speech on big tech. It's driven by something else, and it's very concerning. It's almost like this group mob mentality that once we're told what the government wants us to say, then those companies that have the power to do so are going to ram you into that that into those those uh, confines and keep you there, and woe betide anybody who tra- dares to step outside of it. What's driving? Let that? me ex- let me explain. Um, I've pieced this together. You know, big tech had issues with privacy and other stuff before 2016, but they did not try to step in and fact check and control our information, do the fake fact checks and the censorship until they were lobbied to do so by the left after Donald Trump, you know, toward the time when they thought he might win the presidency and after he did win. They admit, including David Brock from the propaganda smear group Media Matters, acknowledged and bragged to donors shortly after the election of Trump that he was responsible or his group for getting Facebook and convincing them to go after fake news, which they defined as conservative news. And in every instance at that point, there was a nonprofit started called first draft about the same time period that introduced the concept of curating our news online. People hadn't been asking for that. This was a new propaganda concept where they spent the last four years trying to create a market to make us think we wanted our information curated and filtered. And they did quite a good job at it. Billions of dollars have been poured into this effort around the world by people who want to control interests and working with the big tech companies to convince them to intervene. So I explain it by saying these powerful propaganda corporate and political interests that quite successfully co-opted the news narratives and the terms of how we report the news by 2016 saw that with the election of Trump, 
people were getting information off the news. People were not believing just what they saw in the news in these controlled dialogues. They were able to go online and find countervailing science and opinions and viewpoints and facts. So they needed to control that too. Mm. It's the same cast of characters that successfully, in my view, infiltrated the news in the past decade and a half that got busy on the internet in the past four years. And now, you know, it's, it's pretty incredible. I never would have guessed if you'd asked me that journalists would be cheering on, as some of them do, this censorship of information online and on the news where they're arguing and saying certain views shouldn't be seen, that the president, Trump, or former president, when he speaks now, that his videos shouldn't be posted or allowed. These are, this is stunning. This, I just would never have guessed it. And yet it's being supported by news organizations who are either doing nothing about it or cheering it on. Um, and to me, it's very transparent attempt to control the narrative and the public public's opinion because these interests no longer just want their viewpoint out there. They want their viewpoint or their facts as they see them to be the only ones that you can find and believe. And everything else is to be hidden or controversialized or people are to be punished if they talk about them. You talk about, I think one of the most stunning developments is after this past election, it's almost as if these powerful forces are trying to criminalize the notion of saying the election wasn't fair or or that it was stolen, which anybody has a right to think or say, but not so much now. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at it and how people are being treated for simply saying what they conclude and whether they're right or wrong, they're allowed to say it and think it in this country. At least they right. used to be. Right. But now even even the, the most basic expression of thought and opinion and science and, and everything else is is getting heavily controlled. Yeah, it's terrifying. And I think what terrifies me the most, and I, and I, I don't know if maybe part of the problem is that so many of the new generation of journalists are coming from a completely brainwashed one side of the political spectrum point of view so that, you know, it's it's almost taboo to try to bring the other side of that. I don't I, I don't understand what has eroded journalism's strength. I mean, I, I get everything that you said about big tech, and it makes sense. I mean, big tech makes money. Most big, most of big tech doesn't pay any taxes, right? So they have a vested interest in doing whatever the government wants the narrative to be. And if you look at government, it's mostly left-leaning, even when there's a Republican in office. The bureaucrats, the people who really run the government, Thomas Massey will tell you this, the people who actually run our daily lives are all leftists. <laughs> that's that's who stays over after the Republicans are long gone and so on and so forth. So it makes sense. But why does it make sense that, like from your perspective, why has journalism thrown full in with that? Why has journalism forsaken even the appearance of fairness and balance? Well, I think I. it's a complex equation that I've traced in my first two books, which is Stonewalled and the smear, but I think the smear in particular talks about how journalism came to be what it is today versus what we used to think of it as. We were never perfect, but as you know, we used to at least, as you as a former journalist know, that we tried to keep some semblance of a firewall between news and opinion and tried to have objectivity and neutrality. But I trace in the smear a very concerted and organized, I even have dates and, and names of how this happened, effort to infiltrate news so that you don't just have traditionally trained journalists working there, you have the people that want to, the propagandists who want to control the news. And they're not just influencing us from the outside. They figured out how to, you know, make us think certain things by 
going through third parties and nonprofits that don't look like what they are to try to look like the news is a certain way and so on. But we ultimately hired them in our newsrooms. And I talk about that in Slanted. They work inside newsrooms now, mm. which is why when you see a place like CNN make egregious mistakes that would never have been accepted when I worked at CNN, you know, back when it was a news organization, on a daily basis, they're making mistakes and problems or violating journalism tenets. And yet nobody's punished routinely. And that's because they're accomplishing the goal. If you look at them now as as propaganda outlets, which is what they are instead of journalism groups, it all makes sense. Right. I mean, that's only, you know, light under which it makes sense is if you see that they've been successfully transformed. And you talked about financial interests. When I saw CBS making some decisions about stories, certain people at CBS, not in the best interest financially, you know, against stories that were actually quite popular in drawing viewers. I realized there was something much larger at play with these powerful interests seeking to shape marriage that didn't just have to do with finances. I don't think, in my view, that's not the driver behind all of this, which a lot of people blame. But I don't think it's it's a financial driver. I think it's bigger than that. It's, is it political? Political and corporate, and those interests and intersect. And yeah. it's not just left and right, because you know when it comes to reporting on pharmaceutical industry, which I think is one of the most powerful entities in the world, it's so inextricably intertwined with government and CDC and NIH, as I've learned, yeah. and goings on on the Hill. You, you really can't separate the two. Yeah. And that crosses both left and right, although you know, from time to time, a lot of these battles seem to be left and right and maybe are. But I think a lot more of them than we know may be designed to look that way, but are being driven by something bigger that really crosses beyond politics. Yeah, I think what breaks my heart about what's going on right now, I, I think the vaccine is a is a modern miracle wonder of science, but I want it checked out first. And what I think is a huge failure on the part of journalism in America right now is there's a few stories here and there about odd deaths that have happened afterwards and really, really vicious side effects. They're few and far between. Now, I'm not saying that's what it's... I'm not saying that it's it's bad. But what I am saying is I'd really like to see a, an absolutely objective investigative report on how many people are having bad side effects, how many deaths have occurred, what percentage of that is that of the number of people that have taken it, and, and so on and so forth. But that story will not happen in today's news society at all, will it? Well, I've, I've dabbled around the edges of that, you know, not in any comprehensive way like you're talking, but I've called through the adverse events reports um, after vaccination on the system and discovered clusters of mysterious deaths after vaccination in Kentucky and other places in Kentucky. I think it was Kentucky or could have been the second nursing home. There were there were four deaths in one day, two hours after vaccination. And, you know, people have noticed um, that everything's connected to coronavirus, even if, as one medical examiner in Colorado said, in a case of a suicide and a separate murder by gun, those were called coronavirus deaths because the people tested positive for coronavirus. Right. So everything's a coronavirus death, but nothing is a vaccine death because when these people die immediately after vaccination through things we know can be exacerbated by vaccines in some people, we're told, well, they were sick and old anyway, and there's no reason to think it was the vaccine. Sort of the opposite attitude. And again, thinking people understand this and know that there's something amiss about the way we're being given the news and the information. But the drivers 
behind these narratives are so powerful and all encompassing and they've gotten to be that way that you're right. You know, there isn't anybody that's probably going to call through and do the type of investigation you want. I would like to see, and I'm like you, I think many vaccines are fantastic. Um, I certainly am not advising people. It's a very individual decision as CDC says as to the risk benefit ratio on a particular vaccine. Um, So I'm certainly not speaking plus or negative, just looking as a journalist, I'd like to see all the COVID deaths attributed to COVID in this country. I would love to examine all the death certificates and separate the ones that were caused by COVID quite convincingly versus the ones that may have been the deaths that may have been exacerbated, Mm -hmm. much like the vaccines may exacerbate illnesses in somebody, may have exacerbated pre-existing conditions or how the person already was. Does it matter? I just think it gives you a picture, perhaps a different picture of what's really happened in this country. And then I'd like to know how we're counting things versus how other countries are counting them, because we compare them all the time. Right. But we really have no baseline to know how individual countries are counting versus us. And then lastly, here's just one other point of among many about coronavirus. Every time the media claims or talks about, you know, cases being up or down, they're not telling you how many tests were given. Mm. You don't know, yeah. rel- you only know relative to how many tests were given, whether cases are up or down. And as many, many more tests were given in this country, cases probably were spreading, but there was no attention given to the notion that when you test more people, you know, you're going to get more positives and you have to adjust for that when you're trying to say, what's the relative impact of the disease in your country? And nobody's doing that. So these simple things that I've talked off camera with scientists and virologists about, and they agree with them, but don't want to speak out about some of these mistakes they see for fear of, they say, being smeared as a coronavirus doubter, which they're not, or for fear of contradicting the revered Dr. Fauci. And I've been told that personally by three scientists who work on these issues, that they're afraid of speaking out about what they see in public that's wildly wrong, that's being reported by the media or being said by public health officials. And I think that guy has a vet. This is just my personal opinion, but I think that guy has a vested interest in the fact that he was somebody nobody in normal society knew the name of prior to COVID. Suddenly he's famous. And I think when the virus goes away or when its seriousness goes away and life go back goes back to normal, his relevance goes away. And I think that I think- there's people that are truly hanging on and clinging to that. Let me tell you a little bit more about that. Okay. And these are just that confirmed because there were a lot of rumors going around. I try not to address stuff I don't know something about. And I don't know much about a lot of stuff. But I looked into rumors about coronavirus. Yes, it's true that we, the U.S., through Fauci's Institute, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at NIH, we were funding the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the lab in China, where it's widely believed now, I can confirm and tell you within our government, that that's where this was leaked from. They think it was an accident from research that was being done, by the way, likely vaccine-related research. Right. With that coronavirus, we were funding it. And in fact, a year before this release, um, our own State Department, the Washington Post, printed these cables maybe eight months ago, got very little notice, I don't know why, but our own State Department inspected the lab and suggested that there this would happen. They said that it was so sloppy that they were so ill-equipped to be doing this high-level bio research that they were doing with us, funded by us in part, 
that they said there could be a crossover of that coronavirus into humans and a release causing a pandemic. Wow. So this traces back to us, if that's true. This traces back to the United Jeez. States. And research that scientists, when I've asked about this, who knows something of it, they don't understand why we were you know, researching and partnering with the communist Chinese who are not independent. They work for their state government, who have a very sophisticated bioweapons program, by the way, why we were partnering with them. And to my knowledge since then, the Wuhan lab has never let us in for the inspections that we've been asking, and yet we continue to fund them. Right. So a lot of this doesn't make sense. But I think, you know, when you talk about Fauci and others defending and, and trying to controversialize those talking about a possible tie to Wuhan, there could be more to the reason they don't want us to talk about that than just, you know, what appears to be on the surface. Sounds like we need a good investigative reporter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope to be writing all this up soon. I yeah. just haven't. I, I now have almost all the information I need, and I have to just sit down between my other jobs and um, publish. Although I will tell you that more and more journalists, including not just me as a nonpartisan, but there has been some left-leaning reporting that has concluded exactly what I told you. Mm. So it's now not even as controversial. If you just said this. A year ago or, you know, nine months ago, right. you were going to be labeled a conspiracy theorist and a coronavirus doubter. Yeah. But now it's coming to be around that even the left and the right leaning press are coming to these conclusions because they, I'm sure they have some of the same sources I do. I did. And notice, a lot of sense, you know. Yeah. I did notice that the who was like, oh, there's nothing there at Wuhan. And then basically for the first time in a long time i saw the whole media pushing back no the u.s government thinks there is <laughs> you know yeah. and i was like well that's at least a good sign that at least on the issue of because the who is obviously uh in china's pocket in my opinion um so uh but yeah i mean at least there's some pushback there so it'll be interesting to see how all those stories play out um i want people to check out your books uh stonewalled the smear and slanted uh, your website is also, make sure you uh, spell Cheryl's name right. It's S-H-A-R-Y-L, and then it's Atkisson, A-T-T-K-I-S-S-O-N, CherylAtkisson.com. And, of course, the books. Let me just ask you one sort of closing question. How do we fix journalism and the narrative problem that we have in America right now? Well, if you, by the way, if you misspell my name, it'll still probably come up on the search. Okay. And I also have... Sunday TV program we feed to 43 million TV households on ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, and so on called Full Measure, which you can watch replays at fullmeasure.news. Um, but uh, how it's fixed, I think this is a complicated equation because we needed to work on this starting 15 years ago, this control of our information in the news, which I even suggested at CBS to our lawyers when I started seeing this, that we start developing strategies. But we're just too busy covering the news, and they're a multi-billion-dollar industry trying to control us. So who wins? But I do know that there are three groups of people working on solutions. There are journalists who want to report fairly; they just don't have the way or the ability to now. There are investors who want to invest in fair journalism, but they don't know where to put the money. And then there are technical experts working on the problem of how can you report like that and not be deplatformed. And I do think, being an optimist, that in the next four years these people will come together and find some solutions. I don't think you'll fix what we have, but I think there will be, you know, alternatives and ways to find real information out there beyond this. I think we're at a really low point in terms of how controlled everything is becoming and how much, how accepting people seem to be of it. Right. And 
hope we'll pull out of it. And I think there will be some technical solutions and some partnerships in the next four years that could help. Well, and I also think cancel culture is going to fold in on itself. I think the vast majority of Americans think it's ridiculous. And I think at some point it's going to go the the boy who cried wolf, you know, and it's just it, at some point people are going to give it the old stiff arm and then start looking for those solutions and partnerships that you're talking about. And I think we're starting to see that uh, as we speak. Yeah, I agree. Um, does Amazon still sell your books, or have they tried to cancel you? Because I know Amazon well, is canceling books left and right if you're not the right. Know. You know. Last time I looked, they are. It's also available on every bookseller and at HarperCollins and at libraries. So, so far, you know, the last line in my book, the, the last one said something like, you know, I think I left with some hopeful signs, but then I said, if not, you know, people will tell you in the future that this book was never written. Yeah. And I just didn't realize how fast we'd be getting to this crazy place where that doesn't sound outlandish anymore. It sounds like that's something that could really happen. So yeah. I encourage everybody, if they're listening to you, they probably already think this way. But speak out. Don't be bullied by those who want to control your opinions and thoughts and make you think that you know, you're in a minority and you don't have a right to speak about certain things, you know, hang in there and search for facts and search for information. Don't be bullied. Totally agree. And by the way, at it, Amazon does still have your books up. Um, so you can go there and just type in the smear or slanted and it'll take you right to uh, right to those and Stonewall as well. Cheryl, thank you. It's It's been a pleasure. I've, I've followed your career. I'm I, I, I'm fascinated by courageous people who stick out like sore thumbs and you do. And I love that about you. So I really appreciate you taking some, I know you're crazy busy and in a, in high demand. And I appreciate you taking a few minutes to chat. Well, with us. compliment. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye. All right. That was fascinating. Um, it will be interesting to see how much of what she is, uh, onto plays out. But I got to tell you, if you don't have people like that asking those questions, you will never get the answer. What is that old statement? You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Well, we miss 100% of the information we don't dig for. Bottom line. Um, so thank goodness there's still a few journalists out there. But what has happened to her, especially at the hands of the government, has just been unbelievable. There's nothing else I can say after that. That was a fantastic uh, conversation. So I'm going to leave it at that and thank our sponsor, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. LouisvilleCabinetsandCountertops.com. Check them out. I don't talk about businesses I don't fully believe in. This is a business I believe in. I've been a customer of theirs twice, our kitchen and our master bathroom. But don't just take it from me. Take it from Bill, who on Google Reviews said, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops did a remarkable job, professional quality, honest and informative consultations, and reasonable prices. Guys, that was exactly my experience with them, and it's why I'm proud to partner with them. They were a big sponsor of my show in Louisville. They're a big sponsor now, and I really appreciate them. Uh, call 502-930-3304, 502-930-3304, and uh, stop by and see at the showroom, 6200 Hit Lane. George, Michelle, Kelly, they're the designers. They can help you out with that. They even have high-quality, affordable counter, uh, cabinets in stock if you're a do-it-yourselfer or a contractor. Go to LouisvilleCabinetsAndCounterTops.com. Thanks to my co-executive producer, Cameron Mills, who does absolutely nothing and is a big lazy butt. He's going to be on the show soon. Uh, also to JP Web Design and Dynamics Audio Productions in Lexington, Kentucky, and thank you to you, the thousands of you who download this episode, these episodes weekly, the thousands of you who listen to the podcast. Please share it with your friends. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio. Please give it five star reviews. That's what makes them push it out to even more people. So we grow the audience that way. Follow us on Twitter. It's at Leland Show and at Greatly. Uh, 
at Zone Disruption. And on Instagram, it's at Great Lelando and at The Disruption Zone. Thank you guys for listening. I'm Leland Conway, The Disruption Zone.